Yeah, g'day, mate. You're listening to a Radio 191 FM podcast. Tenakoto, tenakoto, tenakoto katoa. No my harimai ki breathe the science. Ko Flynn Tokoingawa. Welcome to Breathe the Science, episode four. My name is Flynn Robson, and I'm joined as per usual uh, by my partner in crime, Ben Robbins Parnica. Ben, how are we going? Um, very well, thank you, Flynn. All things considered, in this ever changing, ever evolving world. Yeah, I think um, this is the first time we've had a a distance the science in a long time quarantine quarantine edition <laughs> since uh since last year when we recorded um during the first outbreak of of coronavirus in new a zealand a long time ago a lot's changed a lot yeah. hasn't changed a lot has changed yeah it's, it's it's crazy crazy to think and um we've never so elegantly introduced breathe the science um and it's because it's the week of recording is tawiki o tereo maori um which is maori language week um, so I thought we might be elegant and uh, I might get a turn at introducing the podcast. Yeah, but, why not? Uh, yeah. Something new. <laughs> exactly. Well, we should crack into, um, into, into the usual scheduling. The scheduling. Um, science news. Which is science news. What's which new in science? I, yeah. We've talked briefly about how we don't have a lot of science news today, but uh, Ben, you've come to the table come with to something. come to the table. Um, there's, uh, I don't know if... The listeners have seen, in fact, the the footage of the last uh, Tasmanian tiger or the thylacine from um, the Australia from Australia. That's where they live. Australia. Do you want to? Yeah, that's uh, a big, <laughs> um, big, do you wanna big apex predator. What the Tasmanian? Um, big marsupial predator. So it had a pouch, and it's like a kangaroo. It had um, a pouch and stuff like that, and it's uh, kind of fit the niche of a wolf a little bit. So it's like wow. It's like um convert or not con- convergent evolution i think it's called and it's yeah yeah and it's kind of it's kind of filled that niche because obviously there wasn't a top predator back in the day in um australia and and there isn't now because the last one was killed off they were all hunted to extinction because we're good like that um by humans um yeah. so they've recently recolored um the last footage of um of a thylacine which is the the latin name for a tasmanian tiger so if you're interested in that, go go have a look because it's it's kind of eerily beautiful to see something in color that's that I've seen because I've seen the footage quite a bit. Um, to see it yeah. in color and colorized, it's kind of eerie. It's like those old the, the colorized World War Two footage and World War One footage. Yeah, you know, it's, or even even when they uh the World Fair footage when that's been colorized and and brought back to life, and you're just amazed at sort of like the the history that can just be brought to present day like you feel like you're immersed in it yeah it's a it's a it's a, it's a yeah because you give a new appreciation for it because you always think of back in the day as a, a black and white and you often forget it was a world in color but exactly it, it wasn't you know it, it, it's kind of lost on you a little bit yeah it demystifies it like you you can feel like that was something that existed and wasn't just bones and black and white photos sort of thing yeah, I get, I get you. Um, I actually got some more science yeah. news. 
Um, this one's to oh, do with uh, climate change, and it's around animal bodies. And um, mm. they've been observed. It's a, it's a bit of a strange one because it seems like animals are slightly adapting to survive climate change. And I mean that in the fact of, of thermal regulation. Ah, yeah. So, um, that if you're adhering to Alan's rule, it's um that most, especially big animals in hot climates like African elephants, use their extremities to regulate their internal um temperature, which is why elephants have huge ears because it's a really thin piece of skin. It's got a lot of blood flow, so it can cool itself down by flowing blood through those ears that will then be radiated. The heat will be radiated into the environment and therefore cooling the animal down. So it's, it's not to do with flying as one specific Disney movie might have you think. No, 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 no. Dumbo was, uh, was, uh, one of a kind, one of a kind for sure. Or two of a kind now. Cause they remade the movie, but, um, birds, Classic. birds have been doing it as well with feather patches and, um, and, and their beaks as well. Cause birds regulate temperature with their beaks. So you've seen an increase in, uh, in slightly beak size and beak volume to help yeah, combat I've, combat that I, hot climate. I saw that actually in the science news as well. We must be keeping on the same uh, science news beat, Ben. Yes, exactly. And you might think, well, why does this matter? Like, um, surely it improves their capacity to survive in a changing climate. But it often comes at a cost. So it might be that because the beak, I'm using birds as the example, because that's what they've been observed in most. Um, the beak is, is now a bit bigger it doesn't fulfill the dietary niche very well anymore in terms of you need a very specific size beak to open a specific sized seed. And of course, if you're selecting yeah. for a bigger beak, it might not be as efficient in, in terms of gathering food. Got to be that trade-off. Yeah, so it was, it's an interesting one. And it's one to certainly keep an eye on because it's, it's happening a lot in, in the natural world. Um animals are changing for better or worse yeah. to try and to try and adapt this human induced stress that we've we've put on them yeah it's cra- it's crazy as well like there are like specific animals that you can see evolution within our lifetime because their life cycles are so short um and you know you actually see the evolution and process which is which is crazy well yeah it's it's kind of and i bring up covid you don't really see microbials and um, viruses turn over too quickly so you, it's kind of lost on you and you need to visualize it but it's, yeah. it's the same with with bacteria and stuff that's why they can be resistant to certain drugs because their turnover is just crazy yeah and it's crazy that you know when you see a bird and you see the size of its beak it's something that we can all visualize like quite easily it's great oh now that I've actually I've actually got something that's just popped into my head I saw Ikea has actually learned to use tools because its um its beak has been like absolutely destroyed, so its top beak doesn't oh, really? doesn't exist anymore, and it's been using tools to to kind of get around the fact that it's a little bit incapable of of eating maybe rubber off cars like they like they like to do. Yeah, that's crazy because like often um, when anthropologists talk about like human, what is the modern human, um, and what like goes from sort of. Uh, pre-humans to human often they'll talk about tool use being like the the thing that sort of that uh helped sort of change from one to the other and it's crazy like there's another animal out there living in new zealand which is an example of one that's adapted to use tools over like its own 
um, natural features. Yeah, it was, it was, I don't know too much about it. It's just popped, in, popped into my head. So go have a Google if you want a little bit more information yeah. on that. Um, yeah, Floyd, you were going to grace us with bats today. Yeah, I am. But first, I think I'll, I've, I've garbled up some Twitter news um, on two of my favorite presidents of all time, um, the Don, the Grease Man Trump, um, and Dopey Sleepy Bido. Um, so today is, today is a mix of both Biden bunker um, and Trump talk. So we're just, we're just checking in with the presidents, uh, the presidents 11, or two of them actually. Uh, so the first one, even though Trump has, has been out of office now um, for, for a wee while, um, there's, there's still stuff coming out from when he was in office. And I think this, this is one of the funniest things. I think you enjoy this a lot, Ben. Um, a headline came out that Trump officials used a secret Twitter account to take swings at the administration's critics. Um, so what had happened is the Twitter handle No Bull Bison appeared in April 2019 and started taking swings at the administration's critics. Um, and the bio read Bison bringing the facts, calling out the bull. Um, and the, it was quite funny because it was actually um, set up by the email of a top government official in the interior department. Um, and what they've discovered is that um, through a Freedom of Information Act request, it showed that the agency's top lawyer, the chief of staff for the secretary, were involved in crafting an, a Twitter account to rebuke left-leaning critics of the administration. Um, in the first post from the profile, the interior department which was the noble bison lashed out at the left-leaning center for american progress over a report that found that one quarter of all oil and gas leaks approved uh, leases approved by the department were within migration corridors for big game species like elk mule deer um, mule and deer which were all habitats that the administration had vowed to identify and better protect um, so their response to that was creating a troll twitter account and um and tweeting, which I think is hilarious. Well, I'm shocked. I'm I'm uh, no, I'm not. I could you could that administration was full of that kind of stuff, takedowns and whatnot. Terrible. So I'm not surprised. Yeah, it's just funny. It's almost like exactly what you'd expect from a Trump administration. Yeah. The, the, in, the answer the to criticism was Twitter. Yeah, and the incompetence to use uh a, the the wrong email. That just exposes yeah, them to literally use the, one of the top spokespeople of the department's email address to set it up, um, which I, I thought that was hilarious. So that was good that they, um, the by uh, the Trump administration is still providing us some absolute gems. Um, and I've just seen as well this week. Um, I think you would have seen this as well that Biden has doubled down on vaccinations and one big push. Uh, so President Biden on Thursday announced that. Uh, he was going to um, put in some sweeping vaccination and testing requirements that were going to affect federal workers, contractors, and even the private sector. Um, and this meant that all federal workers and contractors will need to be fully vaccinated in the next couple of weeks, um, as well as healthcare workers, which receive federal funding through Medicaid and Medicare. Um, the administration will also require businesses with 100 more employees to require testing at least once a week for unvaccinated workers. Um, and this is all because 
About 75% of Americans have had at least one shot of the COVID-19 vaccine, but Biden has announced that his patience is sort of wearing thin with the nearly 80 million who aren't vaccinated yet. Yeah, I, d- I did see that. And it's an interesting tactic to, to force, especially those anti-vax, um, anti-vax critics or vaccine critics to, um, to vote because you hit them a little bit where they hurt a little bit. Yeah, well, for them as well, like it doesn't matter whether you're pro or anti-vax, like working is, is really important through the pandemic. You need to be able to keep up a job or, or have some sort of financial benefit. Um, and it's just one way to ensure that people who are hesitant and maybe not hugely anti-vax, but are hesitant to get it, um, uh, sort of have take the initiative and get it because it just makes it their work life easier. So it's a sort of a smart way of getting people who are on the on the fence to get it. But yeah, it is it is sort of attacking those um, anti-vaxxer freedoms that they always bang on about. But I mean, at the end of the day, I don't think I think their morals would probably crumble a little bit if they're financially under the pump. So I, I think I think it's a very yeah. smart maybe I don't know if it's morally correct, but it's it's a smart way to <laughs> smart way to get that population vaccinated. Yeah, it's and it's like strong from Biden, which I think both of us were not expecting a hugely strong Biden administration on a lot of these issues. No, but no, um, no. he's he's to, yeah, he's turned out to be like pretty pretty uh, progressive in in a lot of cases. I mean, I'm still waiting for him to really knuckle into climate change and a lot of the a lot of the stuff that Trump Trump did. I'm still waiting for him to undo it, but I mean, time will tell. Time will tell. Yeah, there's a lot. Of, there's a lot of mistakes to make up for with the Trump administration. It it'll take a while to get back. Um, but that's sort of my uh, Trump and Biden news. If you had anything you wanted to add, Ben, no, I have I have nothing on the on the science front from them. Oh, there there is oh, just the whole the whole billionaires in space. Funny that um oh. that uh, Jeff Bezos and uh Branson. Branson aren't technically astronauts. Despite going to space, they had to NASA um, redefined what being an astronaut is. So it's a it's a spaceship that has to be controlled in the air and not from ground. Um, so Bezos and uh, Richard Branson aren't actually astronauts, which I thought was a funny little change that they snuck in there. So ego hit them pretty yeah. hard. I th- I think that's good. That just um, sends them back to Earth. You might say. Um, from their bloody high aspirations of being in the billionaires rocket club. Uh, and it's, it's good. We talked about it earlier this season about that crazy um, space race that was going on. Nuts, nuts. I don't understand it, but I don't have that much money. So I'm not that bored. I'm not that bored and have that much money. <laughs> yeah. You got better things. Um, ben, what have you got to grace us? I think I'm going to talk about bats later, but I'd be keen to hear what, what you have to say on your topic well, we like, this week. We like doing um, like biographs on like people here at Breathe the Science. We, we, yeah. we value that. So I thought we'll, we'll do something similar, but we'll spin it and we'll talk about fruit. In particular, <laughs> the bananas. The bananas you see at the supermarket and all around the world. And they're called Cavendish bananas. And that's, that's, the, that's the name. And they're named after... And you think like a tropical plant, it's going to be named after some explorer. No, it's actually named after William Cavendish. He's the sixth Duke of Devonshire. 
Well, that's that's the other favorite colonial pastime is finding some old dude who has a lot of money to name it after. Um, and he he got the bananas shipped to him. And, and the way bananas work, they're, they're really weird. And the ones we see everywhere are named after William Cavendish, and they're called Cavendish bananas. And they're the ones everyone thinks of when they um, hear the term banana, especially in the Western world. Um, so something about bananas is they are unable to reproduce sexually. So getting a seed from a banana is super rare. So, so um, William Cavendish managed to get his his hands on a banana seed somehow and he, and, he, and he threw and he thought back in the day when it was pastime to be a big collector of natural things and you're called a naturalist he was like man a banana would be a great addition to my to my greenhouse when when owning stuff could be a job yeah so he planted it in his greenhouse and, and it's still there today and because bananas seeds are so rare it is the parents of all the bananas growing around the world that's crazy. That one because that because they can't reproduce asexually, so every banana tree essentially is a clone of the original, which is in England in a greenhouse in Devonshire. That's crazy. That is that is totally whack. Yeah, so it's 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 a bit of a and you obviously know genetics wise that's a terrible idea. It's a terrible idea to have a big, yeah, yeah. big monoculture that that is that is all pretty much essentially the same. That is that that's the ultimate. That's the ultimate monoculture is having the same banana clone all around the world. Yeah, so it's a very weird one, and you wouldn't think that. I didn't know this. I was I was shook, shook when I found that out. Um, and it's not a good way to set up your 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 whole livelihood is ba- banking on this one clone of something. Um, and it entered, so it like kind of hung around and is what, and it, and it kind of just was there in his, in his greenhouse being admired. And it kind of ended up taking off commercially around 1903. But it didn't see big success until the 1950s. And this is where it gets a bit interesting. The 1950s is around the time the Panama disease, which is a banana, bananas disease, ripped through the dominant at the time, Big Mike banana. So before the Cavendish banana, there was the Big Mike banana, which I think is a hilarious name. The big, big bananas. Why not Big Mike bananas? So they were the, they were the dominant (laughs) bananas before the 1950s. Yeah. Well, that's crazy to think that everyone's idea of a banana isn't even that old. And they were, they were set up, they were set up the same way. They were all clones of one plant. So this Panama disease yeah. absolutely crippled the production of them, and the Cavendish banana swooped in and became the dominant um, banana plant. And you might be thinking, well, what, Ben, why are you telling me this? And it, it gets, believe it or not, often, more interesting. Because I've always wondered, why does banana flavoring not taste like bananas? Yeah. yeah I'm- you know, it's a, it's a fair thing. <laughs> it's a fair thing to ask. Yeah. And I did some digging, and it turns out, that we all think about banana flavoring in terms of the Cavendish banana. We don't think about the Big Mike banana because banana flavoring is actually flavored to taste like Big Mike banana. That's crazy. So Big Mike um, and, its, and its bananas had um, more, and I'm going to butcher it because I'm not a chemist like yourself, I-S-O-A-M-L-Y. I-S-O-A-M-L-Y. Yeah, isoamylene <laughs> acetate, which is used to make banana flavoring. So Big Mike's bananas, I'm going to refer to it as Big Mike's bananas now instead of Big Mike bananas because it's a bit yeah. weird. 
Um, yeah, they have more of that than the Cavendish bananas. So they are more flavorful. So if anything, we've stepped down from Big Mike's bananas to the Cavendish bananas. It's a weird bit of history. Yeah. And it gets a bit stranger because the Panama disease has actually switched hosts and now is absolutely running through Cavendish banana plantations. Crazy. So is the, do we have another banana savior to come we and have swoop and, and Flint, become is, the next big banana? If you've ever been to Southeast Asia, you'll know that there's heaps of bananas. There's plantains. There's, there's, there's millions of them you can buy. Well, not millions, hundreds. Um, but the West only seems to be obsessed with one at a time. So, so there'll be another one to step up through the ranks. It might not be the same as the Cavendish banana. It, it certainly won't look as pretty. One of the reasons Cavendish bananas went into global production was kind of a push in the States. The States were, were pretty keen to find a cheap fruit that was healthy, full of nutrients. And they thought, well, here we go. Bananas. That's the answer. Um, and, that, and they had a look at some bananas and all the ones in Southeast Asia are really patchy. There's got brown spots on them. They don't look as pretty as the Cavendish banana. So eventually, because of public opinion in terms of demand and stuff, and they're fussy in the States. Um, they settled on the Cavendish banana. And the weird history of where the term banana republic comes from is the states really knuckled in on this one banana. They crippled governments to make banana plantations <laughs> in the um, Middle America, Central America and Southern America. So that's where banana republic comes from because it's banana company, companies destabilizing the government in order to put more plantations up for cheap labor and to eventually pump those bananas into the States and keep their population healthy and happy with yummy bananas. Wow. That's a, that's an American story as old as time. I love that. Absolute classic. Yeah. So if you're ever in England, go have a look at um, Chatsworth House. That's where the original Cavendish banana um, is housed still to this day, looked after very well. There's a little plaque that tells you what it's about and it's very, very daint and, and, and kind of fun in a weird way. Yeah. And you can think back to the time that Ben told you the story. <laughs> about bananas. I didn't actually know that it was going to be, I knew something before researching about it, about Cavendish bananas. And I knew they were all clones of one thing, but I didn't know about the flavoring mm. and the, the Big Mike's bananas. And obviously now because of um, the way we've set up banana plantations and stuff there, they're huge, vast areas. And the Panama disease has obviously switched switch hosts. So now it's absolutely ravaging, ravaging those plantations, which brings kind of a humanitarian crisis with it as well, because you've destroyed the livelihoods of so many communities and even countries, especially like countries like Ecuador, where we get a lot of our bananas in New Zealand. Um, they're going to be crippled pretty, yeah. pretty hard by, by this Panama disease. Yeah, I think I think the great thing about the story is is like it's an ever going story because you know the bananas are once again in peril and another banana is going to rise to the top. I mean, like it's a an ongoing story. History is doomed to repeat itself. It's doomed <laughs> to repeat itself, and quite literally, if you're a banana planter, yeah, banana yeah, farmer, that's crazy. Thank, thank, thank you very much. I, for I that, know I, I was, was going to talk a little bit about the genetic issues around having having a, 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 a one one kind of tree and the genetic diversity. Us. But I know you're going to talk about bats yeah. and we can touch on it after you've, you've used, <laughs> you've talked about bats. Yeah. Well, I think um, the crazy thing is, is, is it's a genetics themed um, episode today, um, which is crazy. 
we just happen to bump into the same sort of topics. So yeah, I'm talking about um, the same species, which is New Zealand's only um, native or indigenous uh, mammal, like land mammal, which is the bat. Um, and, and not specifically. The weird thing is, it is like our birds, a lot of our birds, the bats. <laughs> yeah. They're not bats yeah. as you'd picture them. They, the New Ze- yeah. The New Zealand bats have, have an even crazier story because they, they actually walk across on their elbows and, and don't enjoy flying that much like many of our birds have decided to do. Um, but I'm t- going to talk widely about bats. I want to cast my bat net um, far and wide to talk about bats as a species. There are many, many, many species of bats um, and they sort of inhabit all sort of areas across the, across the world. And what I specifically want to connect them to um, is viruses. Bats are scary in the way not only that they um, look terrifying, some of the species, um, but also that they carry a host of viruses in their bodies. And they're linked to the SARS outbreak in the early 2000s. Um, and it's been thought to the, that they've, the viruses from bats have jumped species um, from bats to humans through intermediate species numerous times over human history. Even one of the leading theories for the current coronavirus outbreak is that it developed from bats that um, jumped across intermediate species. So it's, it's kind of crazy that these bats are living with these hosts of viruses. And you'd be thinking like, hmm, these bats must be reproducing lots. They must be having sort of short lifespans because, you know, how could you survive with all these um, viruses in your body? But bats tend to live with these viral infections into their, healthy, um, into their late 30s. So bats do not have short lifespans because of all these viruses inhabiting their body, um, which is kind of crazy. Um, and it's something that I was really interested in discovering more about. How can these animals like live with all these viruses with them and in their population and still survive? And it's something that I came to the conclusion when doing a bit of research, which is it's all about genetics and evolution. Um, so scientists believe that their ability to coexist with these infections could be linked to their unique evolution towards flight. So bats are like the only true mammal that have developed true flight. Um, so they don't glide, they mechanically propel themselves through flight like a bird would do. Um, and biomechanical flight is hugely taxing and as a result of flying, they have to reduce. Uh, they have to produce a whole lot of energy, which produces a whole lot of waste molecules. And these waste molecules are called reactive oxygen species. And these molecules can sort of mess with the bat's physiological state. So that's the important tissues that they have, um, and it even damages their DNA. A large amount of these uh, molecules cause oxidative stress, which is the term, um, and it leads to DNA damage. One of the things that bats have, which scientists have discovered, is that they have mutations that detect and repair DNA. So they're obviously going through this oxidative stress, which is damaging their DNA, but they have adapted to sort of work out and fix where the DNA is being broken. And one of the specific things they have um, is the little caps on the end of chromosomes. Um, I don't know if you you would know this been through uh through your studies but a lot of people would remember it from high school biology chromosomes and the very tips of them are called telomeres and one of the things that happens for cell cells when they degrade is that the telomeres sort of wear away um and that's where dna damage happens but bats seem to have really strong dna and their, their telomeres last longer so maybe one of the reasons 
Um, but there's scientists have discovered that there's a host of reasons that that bats are able to to put up with these things. Um, one of the things when you're infected with a virus is is that often what can be most damaging is your own immune response. Often when um, there is damage to DNA or something like that, it, it triggers an immune response, which is inflammation. And if there's too much of an immune response, something called a cytokine storm occurs, which is when uh, your own body's immune system just turns against itself and starts to attack its own tissue. Um, this can cause more damage than the virus would on its own. Um, so one of the things that bats have is that they have a very sort of muted immune response in a lot of ways, um, which means that they don't have as much inflammation and that their body and immune system isn't causing damage to themselves. And this is really cool because it means that they can put up with these viruses um, without their body sort of rejecting it and, and attacking themselves um, and for them to have a lot of the symptoms. But what you might ask is like, how then do these bats survive if they're not having this immune response that's really strong to try and kick out these viruses? Like, why, why aren't they just killing over and dying? And, and what is the thing that's, that's allowing them to just keep living? And this is something that researchers aren't fully sure about yet. It's really hard because bats have got a whole host of evolutionary uh, aspects and developments and characteristics that have helped them put up with these viruses. One of the uh, other evolutions within their immune systems uh, could be further evolutions in their cells defense system, which is called the inferon system. And in humans or other animals, this system has quite a delayed response because it needs to be activated. It's not always active. So often there can be damage done um, before the cells can start to, to put up a defense against it. However, in bats, the system is always active and the cells are always actively defending against, um, against like RNA um, mutations from, from the viruses. Um, and that may be one of the reasons that bats also are infected for shorter periods and have like the, uh, the viruses and as effective for as long in them. Um, and a question that you might get from that though is like how if they're not being affected by these viruses for long amounts of times, does the viruses even stay in the population? One of the big things about viruses is that they need healthy hosts in which they can infect, but they need to also be able to kill that host and move on to another host. And the one thing about bats is they're hugely social creatures, and this means that they have regular transmissions between not only their own species, but other species and other species in different areas. So even though bats don't stay infected for long with these viruses, um, the regular transmission may be a reason that it stays within the population. Yeah, well, you'd think, yeah, if you're roosting as close as you are, like bats do in caves and stuff, there's bound to be transmission there. So you might get rid of it and then the next week get it again because it, it would just rotate so quickly. Yeah, and like it will stay in the population between bats' life cycles so that the next generation of bats um, are infected again. Yeah, and I just thought it's crazy because... Um, Obviously, one of the big uh, diseases that that is in with that stays within the populations of bats is coronaviruses, um, and like we are currently dealing with that at the moment. Um, and it just shows when when viruses which are adapted to live within one set of species and it hops over the species bat barrier, it can be so devastating to 
to species like humans because we don't have those certain physiological adaptions that adaptations that allow bats to sort of thrive th- even though the virus is is present there yeah and the whole the whole the whole thing of it jumping is also a real rarity just pray, um, host switching is, is something yeah. that doesn't occur very often in viruses yeah and it has to be like closely related like um plant viruses don't sort of cross over to animal viruses they they have to pass through through species which they're in regular contact with and also um that the the jump that they need to make isn't much um so one of the things that maybe is causing this is the human encroachment into bats environments um and that's also introducing other species um that not only um that the coronaviruses can jump from bats to humans but that they can jump to these intermediate species and i think that's almost like a lesson to learn from all this like we know all this information about about how viruses live within the the uh bats species and then we also know what the impact on humans are and it's a lesson that we need to learn that like introducing um sort of all these animals and humans into these bat environments um, can be dangerous in the way that viruses can learn to adapt and jump over. Well, it's, it's the same with all the animal flus that we had, bird flu, swine flu, avian flu. Like they're, they're, all, they're all viruses that have, that have jumped because we're closely interacting with, with those, those animals. And it's the nature of our society that we're big farmers and, of course, there's going to be big interaction between humans and animals just as it is. Yeah, and I mean, there are some like crazy benefits to that and lessons that we have learned. Like the modern vaccine was developed by using the cowpox, which occurs in, I think it was cowpox, yeah, it was that cowpox. occurs in cows, um, and that they use that virus to inoculate themselves against smallpox, which is the first disease that we've completely eradicated. And I think that's crazy. That is a real lesson that we've learned about viruses. But there are some like cautionary tales, especially with the current pandemic and, and what we know about viruses living in other species that we can learn from. Yeah, and always be prepared. I think the the whole coronavirus thing brought up a very big point about those wet markets where those exotic animals yeah. um, are kept alive and there's a lot of human interaction with that and it doesn't take much for it just to jump once and then it's there. It's very different to a yeah. to a like a, a, a butchery where everything is already is already deceased so wet market is slightly different in that respect yeah because viruses need a living host and it's like the crazy environment that you're putting a whole lot of animals that have their own viruses living together with in the same place into a market space where there's millions of well hundreds of different species they're all mixing there's opportunity abroad for it (laughs) and humans sort of like bringing you know being the facilitators of like putting them all together it's just sort of crazy but um yeah, I think it's one of the true lessons that have been learned. Um, and I think we can learn further from our, from our batty mates. I, 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 get always caught up, I always get caught up on the New Zealand small-tailed or short-tailed bats because I think they're just hilarious. <laughs> yeah. It's the most New Zealand thing ever. They are. I, yeah, I would, I would highly, highly recommend that everyone who doesn't know about our only um, native land mammal search up um the new zealand short tail bat i think there's a long tail bat as well um but yeah crazy creatures they they walk around on the elbows because why not But they still have wings craziness evolution why are you yeah, like this they still have wings <laughs> yeah and they, and they occupy they occupy like 
the the niche of sort of like similar to a kiwi of eating all those sort of like grubs and stuff just wandering around without flight it's just crazy yeah um the whole this whole discussion Flynn's brought up genetic diversity and it's something that you think about a lot you're like well why do we need to sexually reproduce why is there a need for this and and you can the bananas are a really good example of it because you need that genetic strong point where you got to be slightly different to to another individual to stop that disease from absolutely ravaging you yeah because that's how adaptation and evolution works as well like if if one sort of species or uh, sort of one individual has an adaptation that works then that that can thrive and and progress but um if every individual is the same then you don't have that that range of mutations yeah you do you do get a bit of mutation through like um cell splitting you get like a, just like a decoding error but it's not to yeah. the same extent it's not as strong as yeah. as as you would say using two different people yeah. to make one offspring and it's and because it's and because yeah and because it's cloned like that's not passed through the generations those somatic um mutations it's all it's all crazy there's a lot genetics is one of those things that i wish <laughs> I wish I knew a lot more on because I feel like there's, yeah. there's a lot there's a lot of interesting stuff but at the same time I don't think I'm necessarily cut out for it it's more of a hobby hobby sidetrack well I think I think it's important it it sits in a space between both your area of expertise and mine which is ecology and chemistry like um, genetics is built on the building blocks of molecules um, but genetics is the thing that impacts evolution and it's how evolution and adaptation occurs. Um, so it's like a crazy middle point that today we've just been able to find between both of our sort of areas of study. Yeah, it's, it happens very rarely that um, we both come up with a topic we want to talk about and it turns out to be very similar. Different. Yeah, it's good though. I, I think it's been um, it's great to be able to chat about something um, that we both can value and understand how it impacts a wider wider the wider world yeah and it does have it does have broad reaching implications i mean you've got like we've seen it in the past with a lot of the british royal houses the the challenges that come with not being too genetically diverse and there, there are some serious challenges that yeah. Come with it. yeah there's um yeah it's it's crazy the the sort of way in terms of um genetics and um recessive traits coming out within small populations um with little diversity and then you can talk about like on the macro level like between species like just talking about how bats um and humans differ and and how they're um adapted differently and and they've and they've worked out how to like have different genetic um answers to the question of how to survive with viruses i mean that's the crazy thing that's what evolution does it's it's evolution is blind it, it doesn't doesn't have a problem that it wants to solve it just solves it at the time and it just it just is what it is and it's like really blind in terms of you don't know what you're getting yeah and and as you were saying before with the convergent evolution like that's another crazy thing like you can start at two completely different points um and evolution will just dictate that you know it's going to answer it in the same way but then you can talk about how the eye has been um sort of convergently created but from two completely different ways and completely differently made up within octopuses and also humans yes the the the, i think it was three times three times differently 
that um that eyes have been made. There's three different ways you can construct it. It's similar to flight because you got you got three different ways of flight as well. You got birds, you've got insects, and then you've got reptiles back when they had when the dinosaurs were were dominant. So so you 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 have an issue and you tackle it in in a very different way. Yeah, through selection pressures and and they're wildly different but they achieve the same thing which is why i love biology so much <laughs> yeah i've fallen in love with this topic maybe we should start um just turn breather science into our um genetics and biology um <laughs> biology show. corner well the, getting back to the eye thing the nautilus i think has the weirdest eye in the animal kingdom because it's very much like us except it doesn't have a lens Oh, crazy. So it's just an open cavity that's open to the environment. So it's everything like an eye, but it doesn't have a lens and salt water flows through that cavity and that's how it sees. Well, a, a really like close to home example of like an eye that never fully developed is in the tuatara. Like often people talk about the tuatara's third eye, which has like a lot of the properties of an eye, but it doesn't have a lens. Um, it has cones and receptors and, and a lot of the physiology of an eye. And it sits right on top of its forehead. Um, but it's not, it's not the same as its other two eyes that are staring out of its um, big mug at the front. It's more like a light-sensitive spot. Yeah. And no one knows why they need a light-sensitive spot on the top of their head. They're just old. Yeah. One. They're just old. No, they can do what they want. They're so old. They've survived for so long. They can do what they want. Yeah. It's like, it's like the really old um, member of the family who sort of just babbles on about anything. And you're like, oh. There's too, I don't too, know. too old know to change. About. Too old to change. <laughs> yeah. Well, they're, you know, they're like, they're talking about something in the 1920s and you're like, oh, I don't know. Just let it, let it, just let it play let out. It ride. Yeah. New Zealand's weird for that. We have a lot of ancient phylums in terms of our species that, that don't really exist anymore. Our two frogs, three frogs um, are really old and they're like the only ones left of their, their phylum and their ancient as. Well, Ben, I think this is a, a great time to, to lock in um, episode uh, five or six. Uh, we will be talking about the uh, native species of New Zealand. Why not? Stay tuned for that. Sweet. Stay tuned. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll yeah. sort that well, out. I think, I, think that just, I think that just about wraps up this episode, though. Yes, no, I'd say so. It's been, a, it's been grand, Flynn. It's been a bit different, not being able to like, sit in front of you personally, but we've, uh, we've managed. We've managed yeah and yeah and we've adapted the the theme of the the show (laughs) adaptation that is the theme and overcoming the greatest of odds yeah all right well i hope i hope everyone out there staying safe in in covid we'll see how it develops but um stay safe look after your mates check in on your mates it's important i know it's a it's a struggle mentally out there for for a lot of people so so check in on your mates make sure they're doing all right make sure you're doing all right I will, Ben. You make sure you're doing fine. I, I, I will. Always. Always. All right, guys. All right. Thank you very much for listening. We'll catch you in the next one.
in our sieves. That was a Radio 191 FM podcast. You can find more of them at r1.co.nz forward slash podcast.